Every now and then, the stars align, sang the pop star Lana Del Rey. And rarely was it truer for a modern-day politician than for Rishi Sunak. Not much more than a year ago, he was a little-known Treasury Minister, working quietly in the background for his boss, Sajid Javid, hoping his status in Westminster circles as a Tory rising star might one day secure him a seat at the Cabinet table. And then, the world changed. In a few short weeks, between mid-February and the end of March 2020, Javid dramatically quit, and out of nowhere, Sunak was made Chancellor, and told that, by the way, he had three weeks to finalise his first budget. Sajid Javid has resigned. Now, that is uh, a pretty shock piece of news. How do you feel about taking over in these circumstances? Delighted to be appointed. Lots to get on with. Thanks very much. Are you going to be the Prime Minister's puppet? Less than a fortnight after that, the UK was plunged into lockdown and this novice Chancellor was drawing up the biggest state intervention in the British economy since World War II. If demand is greater than the initial £330 billion I'm making available today, I will go further and provide as much capacity as required. I said whatever it takes and I meant it. Commentators spoke breathlessly of Rishi mania. His personal poll ratings were through the roof. He stands today as the bookie's favourite to be our next Prime Minister. But with his judgement now being seriously questioned, as we all reflect on why the UK failed to prevent a deadly second wave of the virus last autumn. Sunak, of course, now has two budgets under his belt and has been an ubiquitous presence on our airwaves these past couple of weeks. I counted three Sunday show appearances, the budget speech itself, an unprecedented post-budget press conference, six live interviews the morning after, a primetime TV appearance with the money-saving expert Martin Lewis, an hour before MPs in the Commons Chamber on Tuesday, an online Q&A with young people, and finally, an arduous session with the Treasury Select Committee on Thursday afternoon. If you've wanted to hear Sunak deliver his lines on tax policy or whatever, I think his team have probably had you covered. So instead, I sat down with the Chancellor this week to talk about, well, anything but the budget. So apologies if you wanted to hear him go round the houses again on corporation tax, Brexit or pork barrel politics or NHS pay. Instead, we talk about his religion, his love of computer games, his famous Coca-Cola addiction and his biggest vice. We discuss the future of the workplace, the immigration system and how technology might revolutionise the UK's housing market. You'll hear him explain the thinking behind the PR phenomenon which is Brand Rishi, and which, by the way, was very much in evidence throughout. At one point we had to actually stop the interview because his personal photographer was making so much noise taking photos in the background. OK, yeah, no, no more photos here, sorry. Was that clicking? You heard, yeah, sorry, right, sorry. sorry. You'll hear Sunak talk about his family, his um, erratic diet regime, and the whirlwind 12 months he's just been through defending his controversial role in the second wave of the pandemic. And you'll hear him avoid commenting at all on the burning issue of racial injustice, referring me back repeatedly to a carefully constructed 179-word statement that he posted on Twitter last year. From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're inviting you to meet the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, to get beyond the budget and to try to see what the slickest of politicians is really all about. 
Chancellor, welcome to the Westminster Insider Podcast. Thanks for having me. We're a week on from the budget. The dust has just about settled and there have been no real disasters or U-turns so far, which is a success, is it? Well, judging by your last one of these podcasts where you did slightly scarily catalogue everything that possibly could go wrong with a budget in one helpful 45 minutes, I think thankfully... We seem to have avoided that, and and it's been yeah, you know, it's been a good week. I you know, I was delighted to have the opportunity to finally talk about our plans. You work on a budget for months, right? And you can't really talk about it. You have these very frustrating interviews where uh, people ask you lots of questions which you can't answer. But then finally, to be able to have the opportunity to talk to the country about our plans for supporting them through the rest of coronavirus, you know, being honest about public finances and setting out a plan to fix those, but also talking about the future economy we're trying to build. And you've certainly talked about it a lot. I reckon you've given 11 media interviews around the budget. You've done a press conference. You've gone goodness knows how many hours in Parliament and you've not finished yet. Um, so instead of asking you about the budget, I want to talk about something completely different instead. What I want to do is just take you back 13 months, yeah. just over a year to this time in February 2020. For everyone, it was a total different time wasn't it we just had the first few coronavirus cases confirmed (laughs) covid as a word didn't even exist yet but for you you were chief secretary of the treasury you weren't yet even a member of the cabinet you weren't exactly a household name you couldn't possibly have dreamed at that point what the next year and a bit had in store for you have there been moments when it just hasn't really felt real for you over the past year yeah that's that's probably a good way a good way to put it and you're right i mean it was a complete shock and surprise when the prime minister, you know, very, very kindly asked me to do this job. He still jokes about my face as he told me about it over the cabinet table. But I didn't really have time for it to sink in because I had a budget to put together in whatever it was, three weeks after he gave me the job. And so we we got on with that. And then it turned out that two weeks into that three weeks, it was pretty clear that the budget actually had to be quite a different budget or have an extra bit uh, to talk about coronavirus and figure out what to do. And you're right. I'm sure that when I stood up next to the prime minister at that first press conference, people were like, who is this chap and why is he standing next to the prime minister? No one, I mean, no one really knew who I was. So you talk very matter of factly about those weeks. Well, then we put a budget together. Then we realized it wasn't enough. I mean, the sort of decisions you were taking at that time, state intervention on a scale that we haven't seen in this country since the war. Just give us a sense of it of what, what it was like inside the treasury at that time. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, everyone was working, as you would imagine you know, 18 hours a day or whatever it was. So it was very hard work and, you know, it was enormously stressful. We were about to do some quite extraordinary things, you know, shut the country down, stop people from doing things, close businesses down as we fought this disease. And that was going to have enormous implications for people's livelihoods. And we had to figure out what to do at record speed. And I think I did something like three press conferences in the space of a week and a half. Each one of them contained, as you said, huge policy announcements and those were all being developed in real time i remember i was scribbling still my remarks in the prime minister's office as was he on our way up to do one of the press conference you know literally half an hour before it started because we were just working to get everything ready and then even at the time i announced it you know when we announced furlough at that press conference you know, we needed to then build all those systems and make sure they did actually work. So I didn't have the time to to be reflective about it as it was happening, because it was happening real time. Every three days, we were 
figuring out something new to do to address the situation. I was barely at home. I, I mean, I barely saw my wife and kids for that period. Did you ever balk at what you were having to do at that time? I mean, presumably up until the pandemic, you believed in a small state and small government. You're a conservative. They were calling you Comrade Rishi within a few weeks of you taking the job. <laughs> no, I definitely didn't balk. I think I said in one of those early things that given the situation, it wasn't a time you know, to be driven by ideology or dogma. You know, we were facing, you know, a threat unlike anything we'd seen in, well, certainly a century for a pandemic. You know, that required a different type of response. And it was the government that was causing this enormous disruption to people's lives. And therefore, it had to act in a way that was also commensurate with that moment and protect millions and millions of people's jobs and livelihoods. Now, I, I believe then and I believe now that was the right thing to do. You become Chancellor, and for a first few months through the spring and the summer, as you're pouring the cash into the economy, it kind of felt like you could do no wrong. I remember walking down my high street in North London, and this is like Hornsey and Wood Green, right? It's not exactly <laughs> Tory central. Um, and seeing a big black... Not yet. Jack, not, yet. not yet. Well, indeed. Who knows? But there, there was a big blackboard outside my local pub hailing Rishi's dishes. And I remember seeing it and thinking, my God, like... My landlord is already on first name terms with the chancellor. My dad, <laughs> my dad talks about Rishi like he knows you doing this or that. There's not many chancellors that get on first name terms with the public in the way that you have in a few months. Has that been weird for you? Are you pleased about that? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I guess it is surprising. As you said, I went from a situation where people were like, who is this chap standing next to the PM? And why, you know, why is he saying all these things to that? And. Look, I'm glad the things we've done have made a difference to people. So that's obviously, that's fulfilling. And, you know, I get that when I'm out and about. And you can hear very tangibly and practically the difference our interventions have made. And you don't always get that as a politician, because a lot of what we do is indirect and people don't quite feel the benefits directly. But, you know, this was, it was very direct and they knew exactly what this government was doing to help them. And that's great. And I think more broadly, as I've tried to do throughout, is I think it's right that I communicate what I'm doing as best I can. You mentioned all the interviews I've done since budget. I've always taken the view that it's it's an important part of the process to explain to people what I'm doing and why so they can hold me accountable for it, ask me the questions. You know, that, that makes for a better debate. Some of it is surely intentional, isn't it? The sort of brand Rishi thing that people are talking about in Westminster with the social media videos, the policy posters, all the rest of it. You'll have your own podcast soon, won't you, at this rate? What's the thinking behind it all? Why are you doing all that? If you're a modern politician, I think it's incumbent on you to communicate with people in the way that they engage with how they want to get their news and information. And obviously that's changed over time. And people do that in lots of different ways. You know, some people are happy to watch a Sunday morning political show. Some people are happy to turn on the evening news or the breakfast news. Other people are listening to podcasts like this. Other people are flicking through, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or LinkedIn, which I do a lot on as well, which is a fantastic way to talk to, especially small businesses. You know, my job is to go and communicate what the government is doing, what our policy is doing, why we're doing it, have people hold me to account, engage them in the process. And I think that's a good thing. It's a healthy thing for the debate. Some of the stuff we've done, you know, to have you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of people engage with content about an explainer or about a particular policy. That's great. That really cheers me up because I like talking about policy and what we're doing. <laughs> and if it comes and it's well presented, that that's good. I think it's fine for things to be professional. And that probably comes a little bit from my time you know, in the States, just observing how politics is done there, how people approach 
communication, use of different media channels. You know, I think that had an impact on me. And I was like, okay, there's a way to do this where you can engage lots of people and do things slightly differently. And that seems to me to be a positive thing to do. One of the policies from last summer, which was very popular at the time, in retrospect, doesn't look so smart now. Eat out to help out has obviously proved to be controversial. In retrospect, we've had academic studies literally linking that policy to people's deaths. And you'll have seen the Times report this week, I'm sure, with someone on stage saying that it was an insane policy, that it was designed to break people's fear and it worked. And we didn't need that at that time. And of course, we had to go back into further lockdowns. So do you reflect on that? Yeah, I mean, I've read that study and as as I think I've said previously and when we've shown some data as well, it's not... It's not clear at all, actually, that you can draw a link in the way that some people try and do. I mean, the question I would ask is, if you look at the data, for example, where was Eat Out to Help Out used extensively was the southwest. That was a place that saw the lowest infection rates and the slowest rise in the autumn. So it's slightly hard to explain that. Also, internationally, every other Western European country also had a surge of cases when you got into the autumn none of them seem to have done the same thing so why again what what's the explanation for that so i think there's lots of reasons why i don't find that at all plausible but what i would say is why did we do it and why do i still think it's a good thing it's because over two million people work in that industry they're disproportionately younger they're women they're lower paid and caring about their jobs and their futures, for me, is a matter of social justice. And you know that industry is a really important industry for the country, not just because of the impact it has on the economy and the size of it and the people who are employed, but it's, you know, it's an industry that kind of gives life and vitality to all our villages and town centres and high streets. You'll have seen there was plenty more criticism of you in that same piece, albeit unnamed sources, but ah. you know, <laughs> serious article, serious article, serious scientific people saying that you were one of the key voices in the room in that autumn, arguing to delay or not to do a further lockdown. And we, as we know, it was in the end necessary. And that was in retrospect a mistake, wasn't it? Do you think, you know, after a good start and a good summer, you called it wrong in the autumn now. No, I think it's easy to judge these things with hindsight. And you mentioned lots of unnamed sources. So I'm interested to know what room they think they were in. And we can have that conversation. But I wouldn't be doing my job properly if I didn't give the prime minister what I thought the impact any decision would have on the economy. In the same way that you know, Gavin would be right to tell the prime minister the impact any lockdowns would have on children's educational attainment and what that means for their future. And even when we're considering the health impacts, it's not just the coronavirus health impacts that we should be cognizant of. We should also think about the non-coronavirus health impacts, whether that's mental health, whether that's people not getting treatment they need, or whether it's the delayed backlog that is accruing, or indeed the ill health, chronic health outcomes that come from unemployment. So it's right that the Prime Minister hears all of those points of view, and the people who are responsible for those various things aren't doing their jobs properly, and Cabinet government is not working if, if he's not hearing all those points of view. So is it surprising that whether it's me or the business secretary would explain the impact on people's jobs and their livelihoods and on business and all of that has an impact for our ability to fund the health service and everything else down the line? Should that be part of a conversation about deciding on lockdowns and everything else? It absolutely should. And I think it would be wrong and irresponsible not to look at these things in the round. Uh, and, and in the autumn, again, as we've seen, I think you know Wales obviously did try the so-called circuit breaker ended up in a similar place. And again, lots of countries have tried lots of things. Everyone has broadly followed a pretty similar path. 
Last question on the history bit, if you like. When you look back at last year, is there one thing you wish you'd done differently? You must have made one mistake. You're a young guy thrown into this extraordinary situation. You can't have got absolutely everything right. Oh, I'm sure I haven't. And as you said, there's plenty of people with plenty of catalogue of all of those. <laughs> what would, you, those what would you say? What I would mean, you I say? think if I look back, I think look, there will be people who feel they haven't been helped in the way that they would like to have been helped and supported. We've obviously done an enormous amount, and I'm confident in aggregate, obviously, we, we are doing a lot. And, you know, it stands objectively as one of the most comprehensive and generous responses of any country anywhere in the world to protect people at a difficult time. But you can't always do it in a way that people, you know, they'll want the help to come in a different way sometimes. And you're trying to do things and you can't always do it in the exact way that they want. And that's that's obviously frustrating when that happens. And a lot of that is because, you know, as I realized when I had the job, we don't always have the information we need about what's going on in the economy, who's doing what at what particular time. The data isn't there. You know, people are still filling out forms for taxes a year after the fact that, you know, it doesn't allow you to make some of the decisions that you might otherwise like to make. But, you know, that's why looking forward, whether making sure that we have really a more digital approach to some of these things, I think is important. You're listening to Westminster Insider. In the second part of the interview, I'll be asking Rishi Sunak how on earth he switches off when he's away from the Treasury. Whether it's reading economics for fun, yep, really, following his beloved Southampton FC, or playing card games with his kids. And we'll hear his thoughts on some of the biggest structural issues the country faces, way beyond the current crisis, be it housing or the changing nature of the workplace. Stay with us. In the world of politics and policy, information is abundant. Insight is rare. Politico's premium policy intelligence service, Politico Pro, is designed for public affairs professionals. Our expert team keeps you one step ahead of the powers and players driving the policy decisions impacting your industry. From financial services to trade, technology, cybersecurity, and more, Politico Pro delivers breaking scoops, deep analysis, and forward-looking insight across a range of sectors. Want to learn more? Westminster Insider listeners can benefit from a two-week complimentary trial of Politico Pro. Simply email pro at politico.co.uk with the code Westminster. Again, that's pro at politico.co.uk. How do you cope with it all on a personal level? How do you stop the stress of all this, the enormity of it getting to you? So I have two kiddos, I have two girls who are eight and nine who, you know, they're just about, I mean, they're old enough to realize that it's a thing. They're not completely oblivious to it, right? They're not three and four. They're aware and, you know, they'll see a big highlight for them is when the week junior, which it does after budget, there's a, the, you know, they'll do a little thing on the budget. And so that's kind of exciting for them. That's the only way it normally impinges on their life. Um, so, which, so, uh, it's one of my great bucket list things to try and do an interview in the week junior at some point uh, to make them happy. Uh, so, you know, so, but they are the main easiest way to unwind because they don't really care about any of this. They're largely irritated that I'm not at home very often. And, you know, we do a lot of what was our lockdown fun. I mean, we have discovered Dobble. Thoroughly recommend to anyone who hasn't uh, played Dobble with their kids. It's a fantastic game. Uh, so we were doing a lot of Uno, a lot of Dobble, a lot of walks like everyone else. Uh, we were scootering at the weekend, which was good. And that's, you know what, that's the best way to unwind. They're all such wholesome pursuits, though, Chancellor. And you don't drink and you don't smoke. Do, do, do you do? Do you have any vices at all? 
Well, I, I mean, you might have seen this video <laughs> that's a rather suggested I did, which... Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm a coke oh, addict. Oh, oh, a total coke addict. addict. Coca-Cola addict. Yeah, yeah. The record, I was going to say, the record is just being totally Coca-Cola addict. Uh, I have seven fillings to uh, show for it. Yeah, but you've, you've, gi- you've given that up as well, haven't you, Coca-Cola? I, well, yeah, I haven't given it up. Um, this is clear what we're talking about is beverage uh, first yes. I make this mistake again so no I, I don't do it as much as I used to because it's obviously very bad to have as much as I used to have but no I still that's my weekly treat I, I eat a lot of sugar I'm very bad on sugar I eat a lot of sugar really I read so, you did yeah. some crazy fasting diet I do that yeah do I do that. that but not all the time I don't do that all the time I do that kind of one day a week and then yeah if you ask people who work me i have cinnamon bun in the morning chocolate chip muffins for breakfast really? cookies and cake in the afternoon yeah so i i eat quite a lot of sugar <laughs> does does your religion help you with all of this stuff is that an important part of your life yeah i mean it is an important part of my life obviously i've raised as a hindu and you know i pray with my kids in the evening when i'm around to put them to bed and things like that so it is important to me i i guess there's a there's a concept in Hinduism called dharma, which is, I guess, it doesn't have a direct English translation, but it, your duty would probably be the closest word. And there's a, an important part of Hindu scripture called the Bhagavad Gita, which is a conversation between Lord Krishna when he's a charioteer to this warrior in the Mahabharata, which is a great Hindu epic. And they talk about this a lot, and they talk about this concept of doing one's duty and uh, this way to, you know, have a fulfilling and purposeful life. So I think that as a concept is quite helpful because you do this because you believe in public service and you're trying to do the right thing and serve a country that has done an enormous amount for my family, not least accepting them, you know, some decades ago when my grandparents' parents came here. So, you know, to be able to try and do that and do something in that way, I think is, that's quite helpful, helpful thing. And then I get strength from it in other, you know, in other little ways as well. I have a I have a little Lord Ganesh statue on my, which I took me day one into the job, which you do to bring you good luck. The same way as like an Indian rickshaw driver, you will always see they have a little uh, Ganesh statue somewhere in their ritual probably or anyone when they start a new business, you would do that. So, you know, I, I do that, that Lord Ganesh is still on my desk in number 11. And um, actually I left it in there. Actually, my wife was insistent we left it in there when the PM was, was sick before coronavirus. And uh, he used my office in number 11 because he lives above. So it was easy for him to have this walled off area where he could come up and down. And so he was using my office in number 11. I took took all my stuff out, but uh, actually was insistent. We left that there for him to keep an eye on him as well. What was it like as a being a British Asian watching the Black Lives Matter movement blow up around the world last year? Was that affecting for you? Yeah, I mean, I I think I mean, I said something about it at the time, which probably reflected how I... uh, how I thought about it, you know, I think the, the comments I made then are probably that's that's probably the best reflection of how I how I felt about it. How did you feel about hearing Meghan Markle talk about racism within our monarchy this week? Yeah, well, I mean, I'd probably echo what the prime minister said that uh, <laughs> enormous respect for the Queen, and, and beyond that, not not much for us to uh, not much for us politicians to say, and also the power to put out a statement. But again, again, I, I think the comments I made, the comments I made at the time. Are reflective of my point of view on that and I was reasonably I think open about my thoughts on the situation then. Okay let me ask you about a different aspect of your background right when I was prepping for this interview I realized we are almost exactly the same age ah. um, which made me feel great about myself because you're the chancellor and I have a podcast for political geeks but anyway um, <laughs> did you know that being born in 1980 makes you a zenial? 
Are you aware of this concept? No, I have absolutely no idea about right. that. So if you are, there's a little gap between Generation X and Millennials and you are a Xennial, if you are Zenial. you or me, and we are currently briefly taking over the world for a few short years. Oh, good. Good for us. Excellent. <laughs> and it's things like, I read a quiz about it. Did you make a mixtape when you were at school for someone you fancied? That makes you a Xennial. Uh, I, yeah, I have made mix. Uh, I have made, I, I still, I think my wife probably still has the mix CD. Actually, I hope she still does. Yeah. Uh, do you remember when floppy disks were actually floppy? Yeah, I do. Yeah. First it was the five, the five inch ones, which was the really floppy ones. And then it moved to the smaller three and a, it's really the first computer I had was BBC. It was a BBC really? and then moved on to their, uh, then it moved on to, was it the Archimedes? I can't remember. But yeah, they moved, you moved Amiga, from the five. Amiga, Amiga, Amiga. I didn't, I, I didn't have one of those. So Aww. yeah. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. I remember the floppy disks. Yeah. Are you actually a tech geek at heart? You sort of give the impression that you might be. Am I a tech geek? Well, I don't know if I'm a total geek. I mean, I, I have the odd gadget, right? I mean, I, as, as has been noticed. So I have the odd gadget. I mean, I, w- I played video games when I was younger. You talk about Xenials. So I was a big, my brother and I were big, um, gamers when we were young. So we what, played. What did you play? So what we were all Nintendo, it was a Nintendo house. So we had Nintendo and then SNES and then N64. Mario Kart on the SNES is my happy place. So Are you still that, good at it. Uh, you know what? My brother actually gave me as a Christmas present a couple of years ago. Like, genuinely one of the best presents I've ever received. They relaunched the SNES in this mini <laughs> format with all the preloaded games on it. And I had absolutely no idea. So he gave it to me as a Christmas present and it was epic. So we had a brilliant afternoon of Street Fighter and Mario Kart and everything else. So yeah, I know I'm, a, I, we did a lot of that. I love that. So maybe sorry, a slight tangent. Sorry, we should get back on track. Yeah. No, no, let's stay with technology because like, I think it's something that has impacted our lives so much this past year, all of our lives, you know, and I tried to imagine what the pandemic would have been like, you know, when we were growing up, there hadn't have been all of this tech for us to use. I'm interested in how permanent you think some of the changes mm-hmm. that we've seen to our lives through technology over the last year will prove to be. I mean, the working from home thing is obviously the big, it's the big unknown, right? What does the new normal look like? Yeah, you know, like the PM, I think both of us are in the camp of believing that people being physically together in workplaces is a good and positive thing. You know, I think the spontaneity that comes from that, the camaraderie, the team building, I think is all really important. I've missed that over the past year. So, you know, I I look forward to that coming back. You know, is it going to come back in exactly the same way? Probably not. And actually, even small changes have quite big implications, whether it's for the economics of commuter rail or a coffee shop that's used to servicing commuters if people work one day a week on average at home and everyone does that that's kind of 20 percent less commuting traffic you know that that's not a small impact so i think we'll have to see how all that plays out i was interesting or reading an article actually in a american vc blog that i read and they say it's kind of new thing that's growing up in new york actually this was in brooklyn was uh, a new business model of serviced offices but in neighborhoods and very small so it's for people who are they're not doing the commute in but they don't want to work at home when they're doing their days at home so it's a a slightly different serviced office hot desking thing in neighborhoods so you can leave your home and do kind of essentially working in your neighborhood rather than making the full commute into work which is kind of an interesting model and see whether that picks up one of the other habits you suspect is going to stay is i don't know about you but i have spent an awful lot of money on amazon in the past 12 months stuck in my house i feel like everyone i know has done that 
I don't feel like people are going to stop doing that even when the shops reopen or certainly, you know, going back to the levels they were before. How are we ever going to create a level playing field for the high street? Yeah, I think that, that, again, there was already an existing trend and it's been accelerated by what's happened. It's not going to reverse, is it? You know, there's success that comes out of that as well. And we've just seen Deliveroo is going public in the UK, which is great. It's a huge UK success story. You know, fantastic, kind of an example of our future economy. And then on the high street, what are we doing? And what I think one is we're spending money, three billion pounds being ploughed into town centres across the country to help them regenerate and, and do the things that they think will help them be more attractive places. So that's one aspect of it. We're doing planning reform because I think high streets are going to need to adapt and evolve. We're going to have more residential and high streets. So we need to have planning that allows for that adjustment to happen. And then lastly, to your point on level playing field. Now, there's a balance between allowing the economy to adjust and you know people being able to get things delivered cheaper is is a good thing and in that you know the market facilitating that as long as it's done in the level playing field so the taxation is the key part of that you know the way our tax rules are currently constructed they're not great at taxing global digital companies which is why in the budget last year I implemented the digital services tax which is a tax on turnover which is a blunt instrument and the reason we have to use a blunt instrument is cuz taxation of profits is governed by international treaties and they can only be changed by agreement and so through the g7 this year which we're in charge of i'm doing a lot of work with my finance minister colleagues to see if we can finally find uh, an update and a resolution but we have our own digital services tax in the meantime and we're also reviewing business rates this year and one of the things in that consultation one of the policy options is use of an online sales tax as well so that's one of the uh, ideas that people have floated that we're getting people's thoughts on they're big strategic issues that are facing the country beyond the pandemic. And obviously this changing digitizing economy is one of them. There are plenty of others. Uh, could we just dip into a couple of them? I'd, I'd really like to hear your sort of long-term thoughts on them rather than, you know, the policy measures we're doing right now. And I'm thinking of things like housing, which you'll no doubt tell me you've done this, that and the other. And yeah. every government has made small changes to planning law or what they've described as a planning revolution. They've given these big numbered targets. But the reality is, as we all know, that this country has not built enough houses for decades covering every shade of government, really. Why do you think that is? What is the structural problem here that none of these small tweaks at each budget have ever managed to really shift? Mm. Well, I think I'm probably a bit more optimistic, Jack, than you in that sense. But you're right. Look, this has been a longstanding challenge and the difficulty of people in their you know, late 20s to be able to buy a home in the way that they did 30 years ago is obviously a great challenge and it's sad, right? I mean, it, it's an amazing thing to be able to own your own home. Most people want to be able to own their own home and it's important that we try and make that a reality for as many people as possible. You know, we're coming at it, I'm not, I, we probably won't list all the policies, right? But we're coming at it lots of different ways. Uh, you're right that you can do lots of demand side intervention. You can make access to mortgages easy, stamp duty, and all the rest of it. Fundamentally, you just have to build enough homes. I think the planning reforms that Rob Jenrick is taking through are really important. And the prime minister has spoken about this a lot. Uh, yes, but the last Conservative government had huge planning reforms. And here we are having the same conversation. And I'm sure yeah, Labour I, will have done it as well. These, these reforms that we're doing, I, you know, one would hope are more far reaching than what's come before them. Obviously, we're investing a lot as well. And I think we can use technology, again, just drawing on my time in the States and, you know, the use of modular 
building when it comes to housing is something that we have not fully done in this country you know compared to most others whether it's not just in the u.s but also in, in this in europe as well and i think rob's doing really interesting work uh, there to figure out how do we do that because if we can speed up and reduce the cost of home building through using more modular design for example that will help and so i think that's quite an interesting opportunity that we're probably putting more resource and thinking behind than has happened in the past are you doing any economic planning in the Treasury for the possibility of Scottish independence? I mean, I don't think now is... That's not the question that people want their politicians to be focused on right now. I think we're in the midst of grappling with this pandemic, as we've been discussing. There's enormous amount still of disruption and uncertainty and people, hundreds of thousands of people losing their jobs. And I think what people want from their politicians right now is a focus on that look let's you know get through this pandemic exit these restrictions cautiously but irreversibly get people back to work but try that, and get that as doesn't many mean people. contingency planning shouldn't be going ahead in the treasury for what would be an enormous impact on the economy surely? i think I've, i i just don't think we're remotely in that situation i think i think everyone's you know jumping ahead of ourselves uh, considerably right the focus right now should be and is on you know dealing with the problems that are in front of us which are hugely significant and all our focus on those not on some you know potential constitutional change which you know by the way we had a conversation about that a few years ago as well and is the pandemic the reason that the big structural problem we face with social care has not been addressed i know you were asked about this the other day and you said we would have to wait a bit longer for the plan is, is that yeah. why that work hasn't been done yeah i mean i said look well last year the health secretary did start the process that we committed to in our manifesto which was to try and find cross-party consensus on this issue if that was possible we made that commitment the health secretary is engaged in that process so that work is happening and is underway obviously you know, Matt is rightly focused as he should be on, on the pandemic, right? And it's right that government prioritizes. That doesn't mean that no work is happening. As I said, that process started last year, but it, you know, it's a difficult issue, which successive governments have not been able to find a solution to. Yeah, they, they all are. Aren't they? <laughs> well, yeah. well, the, one of the issues social care faces is a, is a basically a lack of staff at the bottom end of the sector. Your visas disqualify the lowest paid migrant workers from coming into working in social care. Are you not going to have to keep revisiting this new immigration system every time we find some sectors sort of missed out? We've, we've seen it happen with agricultural workers. Mm. We've got fintech visas. Is this just going to keep happening, do you think? Well, I'd say a couple of things. Several hundred thousand people have lost their jobs already through this crisis, right? And we're facing unemployment levels that are higher than we would like. Thankfully, not as high as were forecast at the beginning of this crisis, but still higher than any of us want to see. And hundreds of thousands, three quarters of a million people already have lost their jobs. So yeah, should we help all those people into work? Absolutely. And should they get the skills and the training they need to do jobs, whether it's social care or other things they should. And that's what we're doing, whether it's kickstart, whether it's the bonuses we're giving companies to take on new apprentices. And then on migration generally, I think where there is an argument for reform is that for high skill migration. And that's what we did announce at budget. And Pretty's been fantastic 
and making sure that we have a really internationally competitive migration system for those people who are coming here to set up businesses, innovators, founders, entrepreneurs, uh, great scientists, people who are incredibly successful, scale-ups, fintech, life sciences. You know, these are not huge numbers of people, but we want to make sure that that part of our economy, high growth, innovative companies have the people they need and can create the jobs that they do. And just finally, can you tell us what your own economic philosophy is? Do you read economics at the weekend? Do you have economic <laughs> heroes? Uh, I do. I do read a lot of economics all the time, and really, uh, and I do. I do. I, I do. I do enjoy it. Um, so, I mean, I, I mean, I, I talked about this the future economy in the last part of the budget speech, and that is as good a place as any to look at. You know, what are we trying to achieve? Well, we're trying to achieve growth that is spread more equally and evenly across the United Kingdom. And there's a reason I talked about Teesside at the end of my budget speech and the Prime Minister and I were there the next day. It's a great example of the future economy we're trying to create. You know, obviously steel is a, a historic industry for a place like Teesside and thousands of people lost their jobs when the SSI plant closed there five years ago or so. But this is a place now when you're there and we were there on Thursday, you just so much positivity about the future when you see what's going on, whether it's offshore wind, carbon capture and storage hydrogen vaccines manufacturing and you know that's what we're about right it's making sure that wherever you grow up um, you can benefit in that success and my last question is what keeps you up at night the thing that that keeps me most up and the thing that is the most difficult thing for me is uh, is jobs and the reality of the situation is three quarters of a million people have already lost their jobs and sadly, more are going to. And that is happening on my watch. Um, and that is what keeps me up at night. And I'm doing everything I can to reduce that number. And importantly, to help all of those people find new work, new jobs, new skills, uh, get them back into work as quickly as possible. But each one of those is going to be a story of, of sadness, of tragedy, of insecurity, and trying to do our best to fix that is important to me and, and yeah it's the thing that keeps me up that and where Southampton are in the league which obviously at the moment is not great but there we go <laughs> so that's Rishi Sunak the 40 year old chancellor who's only known crises the man for whom the stars aligned and who seized his opportunity with both hands if he is indeed to be our next prime minister he'll have got there via a depressingly familiar route top public school Oxbridge job in the city the safest of Tory seats. And yet so much about him is different to what we've seen before. A practising Hindu at the very top of the British government, leaving a statue of Lord Ganesh to watch over a sickly Prime Minister. The first Cabinet Minister with genuine social media savvy, deploying PR tricks he learned while living in California in his 20s. The first computer games nerd to run the Treasury, as at home playing Mario Kart as he is ploughing through the latest opus by Olivier Blanchard and the first Chancellor since goodness knows whom, William Gladstone maybe, to be on first-name terms with the public. The great unknown about Rishi Sunak is whether he can maintain that popularity when the economic fallout of the past 12 months really starts to bite. If he can chart a course through that and still emerge unscathed, the sky really is the limit. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. Each week, we've been trying to take you deeper into a particular aspect of British political life, keeping well away from the day-to-day news agenda. So if you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And why not have a scan back through our previous episodes, which cover everything from charming a new American president 
to the mysterious world of Sir Humphrey himself, the Cabinet Secretary. This episode was produced by Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my managing editor is James Randerson. I'll be back next week for our season finale. I'll see you then.